Okay, good morning. Happy New Year. One day, one month, and one year closer to our Lord's return. So that's something we can praise God for with each passing day, month, and year. Um, I wanted to start out this morning, first of all, I, I wanted to wait until I got up here to share this instead of earlier, but I wanted everybody to know that I found out it was either during the time or immediately after the time we spent Wednesday night praying specifically that God would consolidate our four cases in Montana. That was done. And so I want to praise God and give Him the glory for that. That was done. And what also was done is a county deputy attorney who mocked us to a judge as homeless vagabonds reached out to the state attorney's general, general's office in Montana and said he needs assistance with this case. Uh, that tells me he knows he's way in way over his head. And so I've been told that the attorney general of the state of Montana is a Christian man, a God-fearing man. And I've been told that by people who are godly people and who live in that state. So I don't know what that means, but if a man is godly in a place of authority, then he will do what is godly and he will do what is righteous. And doing what's righteous in this situation is good news for us because what we did was righteous. And I'll tell you like Robert E. Lee said after, he, after the Civil War that if given the opportunity again, these were the words of General Lee, I would act precisely in the same manner. And so that's what I say openly today. But I praise God for that. Sometimes He answers our prayers just before or during or right after we pray them. And He doesn't always do that because His will is higher than ours and He knows our needs better than we do ourselves. But I want to praise God for that. I also want to praise God in light of this madness from Montana uh, concerning a message I received yesterday. This was from a lady in Montana that I've never met, that I've never met. I don't know her. I haven't had the privilege of ever crossing her path. But she sent this message to me. It says, I just want to say that I appreciate your courage and boldness and refusing to allow fear and intimidation to sway you in any way. I appreciate people who have no fear in speaking the truth. I was raised Amish, and at 23 years old, I came into a relationship with the Lord. I realized that I had been lied to my entire life, and I vowed to never again compromise the truth. The truth sets us free. I have been accused in my life of many things, including being hard, having no grace, just to name a few, because I speak the truth. My Bible says that the truth sets us free, so why are so many afraid of the truth? Truth is a rare commodity these days. It's very difficult to find people or places where the truth is spoken unafraid and unashamedly including in pulpits around the world. So I wanted to thank you. It encourages someone like me who has been forgotten and who has been trampled into the dust 
by those who should have lifted me up to know that I'm not alone. I appreciate you and I wish for your family that the Lord would make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace and victory in Christ. So I just praise God for that. You know, it's to lift up those who have been trampled upon by our own example is to do what Paul said to do or what Paul encouraged the believers to do at Corinth in terms of their own tribulations, that our tribulations can be used to comfort others that have gone through similar things or are experiencing them. So I praise God. A message like that makes this entire ridiculous saga worthwhile. Worthwhile. And it makes us want to fight it and push the envelope for righteousness to the end, to the bitter end. Now, I've said it before. I'll say it again. And I don't care if it's to a, a police officer, to a to another pastor, to a county attorney, to a judge, or even to a state attorney general. I don't care who it's to, the message is the same. No pleas, no deals to the end, to the bitter end. And that ought to be us as Christians. No pleas with the world. No pleas with the world. No deals with the world in 2023. To the end, to the bitter end. This morning, the Lord brought something to mind this first day of 2023. He brought to mind something we did over in Nepal back in 2012 and 2013. And it brought to mind how the Lord opened our eyes on the mission field to see that a lot of the warnings and the fears that whitey missionary had ingrained into us about preaching the gospel weren't real. Jamie and I had the privilege of traveling to Bangladesh in 2007, a Muslim country, uh, to labor with and to reconnect with some folks that we had attended seminary with out in California. Those folks are still faithfully serving the Lord in Thailand today after many faithful years of service in Bangladesh and India. And I I, always enjoy reading uh, their newsletter that comes out every Monday. And so uh, I praise God for them. But they invited us to come spend a little time with them as we were seeking God's will for our time in South Asia after we had spent some time in Ladakh. And um, in traveling to this country where there were serious restrictions and where there were real risks, to getting in trouble for the open preaching of the gospel, what I was able to experience were Christian missionaries doing the opposite of what had been grained into us. All the fear and the 007 James Bond mentality and all of those things. What I experienced was Christians doing the opposite in a closed country. Pushing the envelope. Pushing the envelope. And I was, I was uh, blessed to be a part of mass distributions of the Word of God on the streets there in Dhaka, of preaching and witnessing openly, of even having to run from the police. During that trip to Bangladesh, two of us were detained by a police officer. He had grabbed me and said, you're under arrest. We'd only been handing out Bibles on the streets. 
And so that was the one time in my life where I was able to take a very basic technique that we first teach our students in our martial arts dojo, how to, how to easily escape from a wrist grab. I just escaped from his grab. And we took off down the road and into the woods and hopped into a van, got out of there before those corrupt, wicked cops came. And we continued. So we pre- we, I saw what it looked like to push the envelope in a country where you weren't supposed to be able to do that. And I saw many thousands of copies of scriptures. We went down to a book fair at Dhaka University where books were being sold during a festival that celebrates the language, uh, the Bangla language, which was a big part of a civil war that took place back in the 70s there. And so we went down and used the occasion of a book fair to distribute Bibles in the Bangla language. And it was just an incredible thing that before I would have thought was dangerous and something I shouldn't be involved in. But the Lord used that to change my thinking about pushing the envelope for the gospel. Paul didn't exactly conduct himself as a missionary who was primarily concerned about his health and safety. In fact, Paul wasn't exactly a preacher that was trying to stay alive. And so that was kind of revolutionary for us to see and experience those examples and to be encouraged by them. And so we went back to Nepal after that journey and decided, you know what? We're not going to live in fear We're not going to tiptoe around, occasionally giving a tract and always looking over our shoulder. We're going to push the envelope here in Nepal. And we're going to take what we saw from faithful missionaries in Bangladesh and we're going to duplicate it here. And that's where God began to put upon my heart the desire not just to distribute God's word but to print it. To print it ourselves because we simply couldn't get our hands on enough materials. I remember we went to a festival outside of a Hindu temple after we came back and decided to push the envelope. And I'd, I'd collected a, about 1,000 or 1,100 copies of the New Testament in the Nepali language. And we went down to this festival and gave out every single one of those in 20 minutes. So 1,100 copies of the scriptures went out in 20 minutes. And we suddenly realized we had a supply problem. And the people who were supplying us the New Testaments wouldn't do it anymore because they, if they kept giving them to us, they wouldn't have them to give anybody else. And so we decided we'll have to print these things. And so in the midst of that, Project Jagarna was born. And in working with Brother Bishnu, we were able to translate scriptures faithfully into the Nepali language to print them and to push the envelope for their distribution. In pushing that envelope, we decided to get out and preach on the streets in Kathmandu. Something we were told you couldn't do. You wouldn't get away with it. You'll get in trouble. You'll get, up, you'll get kicked out of the country. You'll get all of us kicked out of the country is what these missionaries said. I had a friend I used to go to seminary with who was a missionary in Nepal at the time. He was of a different spirit. and He said, I tell those under my authority that if you get kicked out of this country for preaching the gospel, then I'm going to meet you down in Thailand and treat you to a steak dinner because that means you've done something right. And so we decided we're not going to listen to this anymore. We're just going to go out and preach and whatever happens, happens. And over the ensuing months, we were amazed to see God open the doors. We carried a cross completely around the perimeter of the city of Kathmandu and through the middle of it and preached our guts out in the language of the people. And we were never bothered. 
The police never harassed us. There was an occasional time where people in the crowd would get upset and we would be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. But God opened doors we were told couldn't be opened. And it was simply because we put fear aside and pushed the envelope. Those were amazing days. It, but in the midst of that, as we wrapped up our time there and then later came back, I mean, we began to really push it there in 2007, 2008, and then my family and I went back over there in 2011, 2012, and really pushed the envelope. A lot of crosswalking, a lot of preaching. I bet you we stood and preached in probably 50 to 75 different locations around that city of Kathmandu and then all over the country. And coming up on the, uh, around April of 2012, April of 2012, when we got a huge batch of scripture portions fresh off the presses, we began to think of setting a goal for the coming year. Now, I'm not talking, we were in Nepal, so we were on the Nepali calendar. Did you know that right now on the Nepali calendar, it's not 2023? <coughs> It's 2079. And 2079 will become 2080 in April. I think it's April 14th of this year. So the Nepali New Year is usually in the spring, sometime in April or March. And at the time, when these books came off the presses and we entertained a couple of brothers from California who were strangers at the time but wanted to come and labor with us. Now, they've been friends to this day, great friends. One of those was Brother Ken Lightsey. We decided to look ahead to the Nepali year 2069. 2069 began in April of that year. And we set a goal. We set a goal. One lakh in 2069. Lakh is a term, a South Asian term or a numerical term that designates... Ten ten thousands. A lakh is ten ten thousands. And that's how they conceive numbers. So in other words, a lakh is a hundred thousand. Okay? So they deal in lakhs, ten lakhs, a hundred lakhs. And so it's a little different than ours. But a lakh is ten, a hundred thousand. And we decided that in 2069 on the Nepali calendar, we prayed and decided we're going to push the envelope. And we're going to set a goal of distributing 100,000 copies of the scriptures in the Nepali language to Nepali speakers, whether it was in Nepal, South Asia, in the United States, or wherever around the world. And we just decided to set that lofty goal because we wanted to push the envelope. And when those two brothers came over from California and we started out 2069, we were able to get out 4,000 copies in those two weeks that they were there. And we also completed our crosswalking journey around the city of Kathmandu. And God reminded me this morning that at the end of that 2069, by April of 2013, by the end of that 2069, by His grace, we met that goal. But we didn't meet that goal barely. We blew it out of the water. By God's grace, our labors resulted in 120,000 scripture portions going out in the year 2069 and 150,000 gospel tracts in the Nepali language. And so the Lord reminded me of that this morning because I believe we going forward need to push the envelope. 
I think it's time to stop sitting around, being quiet, expressing our disdain for unrighteousness and our love of righteousness. We've, we've moved from a, a whisper to, a, to speech, to conversational level speech. But I think it's time to go from conversational level speech to, 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 to lifting up our voice like a trumpet, to hollering in the streets. And so I want to encourage you as believers to push the envelope in 2023 with the gospel. And not to, not to fear the fears that are being ingrained in our minds. The fear that freedom of speech is in peril in this country. So you've got to be careful what you say. No, don't give in to that. We have the freedoms and the rights in this country to declare truth. To speak against unrighteousness. To lift up the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and call men to repentance. Not because some document put together in the late 1700s says so, but because those inalienable rights come from God. And so we need to push the envelope. I say that when free speech is in peril, speak louder. I say when the ability to defend yourself and your family is in peril, stand and defend. I say when they say you can't come here, you go there. And you don't just go through, you go all over the place before you move on. That's what it is to push the envelope. And that was the example set by the apostles. When Paul was told not to come back through places, he went back through there anyway. And I just remember how the Lord blessed those efforts through the partnership with Brother Bishnu. So many doors were opened simply because we laid aside our fear and pushed the envelope. Those were great days in Nepal. Great days. All of those copies of the scriptures went out. And Bishnu reminded me, he just got back from a trip to, to the Mustang, which is a very remote area of Nepal, central Nepal, up near the Tibetan border. In fact, Mustang, particularly the upper district, is more like Tibet culturally than it is Nepal. And it's a place that's difficult for foreigners to get into. The permits have been expensive for years. I don't know what the present day stipulations are. But Bishnu reminded me that back when we did those distributions, some of those scripture portions ended up in Mustang, an area that we never visited, that he never visited. And it would be later that he would discover that those portions had ended up there and he crossed paths with someone that asked him if he could please get more of them sent up there to the believers that were there so they could distribute them. We didn't know there were any believers up there. He just got back from there um, before Christmas and was able to encourage the saints and get more literature to them for distribution. So you never know what the Lord will do. And when we push the envelope, He'll use it. So let's push the envelope in 2023. I'm going to tell you what it looks like for us. We're going to push the envelope. We told the Lord we'd walk across the United States from sea to shining sea, and that's what we intend to do. That's what we intend to do. And we were content to walk up US 287 and go right across Madison County and head west into the other parts of Montana. I'm not sure what those other counties are. But now, 
Since some folks there didn't think we had the right to walk through that county, and some folks there said we weren't welcome there, now when we pick up the cross, here's what I promise you is going to happen. We're not walking through Madison County. We're going to do a giant loop through Madison County, just like we did here in Catawba County. Those folks said you aren't welcome, so we're going to push the envelope as Christians and as preachers who have the freedom to walk and preach the gospel, and it's going to be a big old loop. I've already been looking at the map. We're going to cover that county. From corner to corner, top to bottom, side to side, a big old continuous loop, and then we'll move on into western Montana. So that's what we're going to do. And so I just want to encourage you in your sphere of influence this new year to push the envelope. If you've been accustomed to being quiet, speak up. If you've been accustomed to speaking quietly, speak louder. If you've been accustomed to shouting, Yell like furies. I think that came from old Stonewall Jackson on the battlefield. When you see the color of their eyes, yell like furies. And so let's push the envelope. We did this in Nepal when we shouldn't have been able to do it. When we didn't even have laws on the books that protected us. And God blessed it. And he continues to bless it today through the work of brethren like Brother Bishnu, Brother Gulzar, Eric over there in Pakistan, and others who face real risk every day and continue to labor for the Lord God. We face threats and, and uh, accusations and um, insults on social media. We might even face an arrest or a courtroom. But we have the law on our side. We have righteousness on our side. And we have the saints, praying saints on our side. So let's push the envelope. Push the envelope in 2023. That's my encouragement to you today. And if you will, I will. I promise you. I promise you. And you can hold me accountable for that. Let's open up to Revelation 22. We're just going to look at one verse this morning. Chapter 22, verse 17. Verses 16 and 17 go together. It's the very last invitation in the Bible. Before we looked at the very last exhortation in the Bible. Verses 6 through 15 of this last chapter of the Bible. And last week we began looking at this last invitation. This last invitation is in two parts. Verse 16. We don't have a good word in English to describe it, but verse 16 describes for us what Spanish calls the invitador, the one who is inviting, the one who gives the invitation, verse 16. That was our focus last Sunday, Christmas Day. Who is he? He is Jesus. He is the root and offspring of David. Not just David's son, but David's Lord. God in the flesh. 100% God, 100% man. And he is the bright and morning star. He is the morning star. Not the counterfeit angel of light. He is the morning star. That morning star refers to his second coming and his coming kingdom. He is the one... that gives this very last invitation in the Holy Scriptures. Today, we're going to look at the invitation itself, verse 17. 
Verse 16 is the one who invites the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Verse 17 is the invitation. And that invitation is threefold. It is written here, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. My friends, that's the very last invitation in the Bible. It's the last one. There have been many throughout the Scriptures. In fact, this, virtually this same invitation appears way back in Isaiah 55. It's very similar to the invitation that Jesus gave to the woman at the well in John 4. But this is the last time we see it. Our God is a merciful God. Jesus is a kind Messiah. He invites you to come to Him. But there comes a time when that invitation is uttered. It's last time. And there's no more chances. There's no more invitations. There comes a door. There comes a time when many have been invited to the wedding. And people have excuses of why they can't come or what they're doing and what they're busy with. And then the, the, the invitador sends his servants into the streets to invite the blind and the lame and the halt and the poor. And they come. And then there comes a time. Close the doors. They're just not coming. We sent the invitations out long, long time ago. We're still going to have a wedding feast big enough to beat them all. The greatest people in the world wouldn't come, so now we'll just invite the small. There's coming a day when the doors are going to close and there won't be any more invitations. But today we have a last invitation. It's threefold. (coughs) The Spirit and the Bride say come. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Bride, the Church, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, not the professing church, the true church, The church of born-again believers washed in the blood of Messiah, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit and the bride are one. So, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the church indwelt by the Holy Spirit, they are one, and they say, come. There's an interesting verse in 2 Thessalonians that I've spoken about in this pulpit, in our studies on the pre-tribulational rapture of the saints, something I believe is biblical and clearly taught in the Scriptures. But we see the Spirit and the Bride spoken of as one and spoken of as having the same function in terms of its relationship with this world. And this ought to spur us to push the envelope in this coming year. As weak as we might think we are, as compromised as we might think the church is, as dark as we might think these days have become. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is writing to the Thessalonians who are having questions about the end times and about the rise of Antichrist and wondering if they've missed it or what's happening. And this is in view of what Paul has already taught them in his first epistle concerning the rapture. 
And they're wondering about the rise of the man of sin and the coming judgment. And in the midst of this, Paul says, verse 5 of chapter 2, Remember ye not that when I was with you, I told you these things? I've already told you these things. And now ye know what withholdeth that he, that is Antichrist, might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. So what we see here is a what that restrains evil. And we see a he that restrains or holds back evil. To let is a word that refers to restraining or withholding. And it's defined for you. Because we see the word withhold in verse 6. I love how the King James Bible's got a built-in dictionary. If you don't know what a word means, read the verse before the verse after. It's often defined for you. But what we see here is a what, a neuter, noun, that withholds. And we see a he, a personal noun, a masculine noun that withholds. My friends, the what is the church. The he is the Holy Spirit that indwells the church. And until we be taken out of the way, we have a role. Our role is to restrain evil. Our presence keeps the man of sin from coming on the scene until Christ is ready for him to come on the scene. That's why Hitler didn't corrupt, I mean, conquer the world. That's why Hitler was driven into a bunker and driven mad to, uh, to uh, conduct a counterattack when there was no way he could win whatsoever. That's why Pharaoh was driven to madness after all those plagues and his own ministers are begging him to let these people who have destroyed the land of Egypt go and he still wouldn't do it. Driven to madness because the spirit restrains evil until the lamb opens the seals. Remember, when the lamb opens that book and opens the first seal, who is it that comes forth? The white horse rider, the imposter, the counterfeit Christ. He doesn't come until the lamb lets him out. And God told Israel in the Old Testament that that Assyrian counterfeit was the rod of his anger for them turning their back on God and his word. So the church and the bride, the spirit and the bride are one. And right now they have the same function to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. And in doing so to restrain evil. And it's the spirit and the bride here who exist now to restrain evil, the very presence of the church in this country, even if the true remnant is small, is a restraint against evil. It's a restraint against evil. The very presence of the Holy Spirit through the indwelling of the saints in a nation is a restraint against evil. But it's this same spirit and this same bride who say, here, come. Come, and let him that heareth say, come. So we've got two entities here making an invitation, inviting, come. The Spirit and the Bride, which are one in this dispensation, in this, this church age, because the Spirit indwells the church. The church bears the fruit of the Spirit. And we also see those that hear 
say come. Who are those that hear? Well, it's the very ones that John said, that it, it, the very ones of whom it is spoken twice in this book are blessed if they read and hear and keep the words of this prophecy. So those that hear and read and keep the words of this prophecy say come. Come. Who are they talking to? Who are they asking to come here? Well, we've got to look at the immediate context. Earlier in chapter 22, we, we see Jesus saying the exact same thing twice. Behold, I come quickly. Behold, I come quickly. And then we look later down to verse 20. We're going to talk about this later. The very last prayer of the Bible. Verse 20 Surely I come quickly, amen, even so come, Lord Jesus. So the Spirit and the bride aren't talking to the lost and saying, come to Jesus. He that heareth the words of this book aren't talking to the lost and inviting them to come to Jesus. They're talking to the Lamb. The Spirit and the bride here at the very end say, come, come Jesus. He said, I am coming quickly, and they say, come. He that hears and understands this book responds by desiring that Christ would come. So the first two parts of this invitation are directed to the one that makes the invitation, verse 16. So when the Spirit and the bride say, come, what are they saying? They're saying, Maranatha. Maranatha, that word that appears once in the New Testament, it's an old Aramaic word. It's not a Greek word. It's an Aramaic word that means come Lord. Even so, come Lord. So the response to the invitador is an invitation to the invitador to come and do what has been written. Jesus, come. Not come into my heart, but come back. I think of two things that Paul says. Philippians... Chapter 3, verse 20. Is that really our heart cry? Is it our heart cry that the Lord would actually come back? Paul says here in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. For our conversation, that is our lifestyle, our behavior, our daily thoughts and beliefs, and actions, the way we conduct ourselves. It's not just talking about speech. Conversation is how you conduct yourself. It has a wider meaning. For our conversation is in heaven. Elsewhere, he says to set our affections on things above. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. That word there, I've spoken about it before in this verse, is a very strong verb. It means to look for something so that your attention is drawn away from other things. To look for something so heartily that you're unable to look for other things. So when we are to look for Jesus in a way that by default causes us to diminish looking at other things. So Paul says that we're to be looking for the Savior to come back. 
looking for his appearance so strongly that a lot of this stuff around us becomes minor. Titus 2.3 is a pretty important passage as well. Titus 2 verse 3. Wait a minute. That's not right. Um, 2.13. I have a bad habit in my notes of when I mean to write 13, I write 3. I don't know if I'm getting dyslexic in my old age or what. (laughs) Titus 2.13 describes, well, let's go back to verse 11. It describes the grace of God. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, the exact opposite of what American churchianity, American government, and American culture encourage us to do. Denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Doing what? Looking for that same word from Philippians. Looking for that blessed hope. What is the blessed hope? And the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. On my Facebook page, a lot of people have little, little cliches up there describing who they are. Mine says simply that we are heralds of the book, the blood, and the blessed hope. The blessed hope. The blessed hope is that Christ would come. That He would come back and redeem us from His present evil world. That He would come from His church for His church. That He would come and affect the consummation and the end of all things that is, as it is written here in this last book of the Bible. You know, it's interesting that this same word here in Titus 2.13, looking for, is also used in Luke chapter 2 to describe what Simeon was doing in the temple. There in English, it's translated waiting for. Simeon was waiting for the Messiah to come. He was in the temple every day looking, looking. So in Simeon's mind, he couldn't wait for the Messiah to come. That's how we're supposed to be about our Messiah's second coming. It says in Luke 2.38 that Anna the prophetess would testify before, to them that, quote, looked for redemption. That same word again. Look for redemption in Jerusalem. And it was to them, those looking for the coming of Messiah, that an understanding of the Word came. Friends, you won't understand the book of Revelation unless you're looking for the Messiah to come. I remember back in all of those days when we were... God was beginning to teach us about pushing the envelope in Nepal. And we were beginning... To, to, to put together a team to translate and to print and, and working through a lot of things. There was a man that I started working with, a believer, and it was because of that relationship that I met Brother Bishu. I went to meet with him in his office, and he had a young man working for him typing. And I walked by an office, another room, a doorway into another room on my way to that office with this bigwig believer. And I saw a young man sitting at the computer and we made eye contact. 
And then later as I was leaving, he spoke to me. And I spoke to him and we discovered that he was pretty good speaking English. That was Brother Bishnu. <laughs> but anyway, this big wig that I began to work with, he said something one day that gave me immediate pause. And it gave me a reason to start questioning whether this is the one I should be working with. Something ain't right. And it was just a simple thing, he said. I remember we met for lunch, and he was flustered and frustrated. And I just said, hey, man, relax. Maybe Jesus will come back today and rescue us from this present world. You know what his response was? His response was, no, he can't do that. I don't want him to come back yet. i got too much work to do yet. Immediately, checking my spirit. Stopped me dead in my tracks. That statement stopped me as dead in my tracks as that drawn Derringer did the old BT out there in Montana. When he came running around that car, threatened my life, reached for something, the car came running around that car toward me and my son, that old Derringer stopped him dead in his tracks. That comment spiritually there in Kathmandu years ago stopped me dead in my tracks. I'm like, wait a minute. This guy's spirit ain't right. If he actually thinks that administrative work in a filthy, dank third world city is more important than our Lord Jesus coming back. And so the Lord used that to draw me to Brother Bishnu, who was just a guy typing in an office. I praise God for that. Do we think that we still have things we need to do? Now, there are people I want to get saved before our Lord comes back. There are people I want to get saved before my Lord comes back. But as far as something I need to do or something I need to accomplish for my Lord, no way. I don't need to walk across America and put my feet in the waters of the Pacific before the Lord comes back. If He wants to come back today so I never pick up that old cross again, praise God. In fact, I said it many times, 5,542 miles of walking, 2,500 plus encounters, never a single incident like what we had out there in Madison County. And yet I was able to tell people many times, you know, if the Lord comes back today and I just drop this old cross in the road and it lays here, I'm okay with that. I'm okay for that trumpet to sound and for me to drop that cross. Now, I don't know if my clothes would be all folded up in a pile nicely like Jesus' were at His resurrection, but it was, it was desirable. Do we desire our Lord to come back? Like is communicated by the Spirit and the Bride here. Like was demonstrated by Simeon and Anna and those that waited for redemption in Jerusalem. Like is described by Paul to the Philippians and to Titus. Are we looking for that blessed hope? If, what does that look like? We'll push the envelope if we're looking for that blessed hope. It doesn't matter what we accomplish in 2023. What matters is we should desire our Lord to come. We shouldn't even be looking for this country to be fixed. This country can't be fixed. The only road to repair is for what we have to become crashing down and for something to be built on its ashes. 
But we ought not to even be consumed about that. We want to see righteousness. We pray for it. We should labor for it. That's what it is to occupy until our Lord comes. But we should be looking for that blessed hope. We should be saying like the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, Lord Jesus. Those that read and understand this book, if anything you've gleaned from this study that's almost 10 years old, if there's one thing I want you to glean is that when we're done, you're like this person here. Let him that heareth say, Come. Looking for Jesus Christ to come. So the first two parts of this invitation really are directed back at Jesus, the one giving the invitation. The Spirit and the Bride, the the Lamb has said, Surely I come quickly. The Spirit and the Bride are saying, Come. And the proof is that that imperative there is in the singular. It's not directed to whosoever will. Because the come is singular in the original language. Him that heareth say, Come. It's singular. Him that hears and understands this book ought to come away with it, hoping and calling Christ to come and do what He says He's going to do. Do we ask God to do and fulfill His Word? When God gives us Scripture and we think that He's speaking directly to our situation, do we ask Him to fulfill His Word? Do we hold Him to His Word? Well, we can. We can and we should. And that's what the Spirit and the Bride are doing here. That's what he that hears the book, this book is doing here. But then we get to the third part of this invitation. And let him that is a thirst come. So the spirit and the bride are saying to the one who says he's coming quickly, come. He that hears these things is saying to the one who says he is coming quickly to come. But now, what we see, to him that is thirsty, we see bidden to come to the one by those who know him. Those who know him, the spirit and the bride, those that have heard the words of this prophecy and believe, they know him. And now the invitation turns to him that is thirsty. And him that is thirsty is bidden to come to the one that those who know him bid to come. Does that make sense? He that is thirsty, come. And so now we turn to those that don't know him. And they are invited to come. And to know him so that that like the spirit and the bride, they too can say to him, come. This is the same invitation that Christ gave to the woman at the well in John 4.14. Him that is thirsty, let him come. We'll go back to there and just read it. John 4.14. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And through the course of that conversation, she recognized this is he of whom all the prophets have said, the Messiah has come. Come and hear. And all the crowd came out. In Samaria of all places. Samaritans who shouldn't have even paid attention to what a Jew had to say. They were thirsty and they came. 
and found life. Here, those that are thirsty are bidden to come. The Spirit and the Bride, those that hear this book, invite the Lamb to come and do what He says He's going to do. And then he that is thirsty is invited to come to the Lamb who is coming again quickly. Come on. If you're thirsty, come on. Come on while there is yet time. Come to Him before He comes for you. And I don't mean that in a positive sense. He's coming for His church. Amen. Praise God. But for those who won't come to Him now, He's coming for you in judgment. I'm reminded of what Jesus said in Luke 20 when He described Himself. When it is described of Him as being the chief cornerstone. The stone that was rejected by the builders is now the chief cornerstone. And what does it say there? It says that, uh, I'll just, I don't like paraphrasing. I'm going to just turn there. Luke 20, 18. Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. So in other words, to him that is thirsty, come and fall on that stone and be broken and be made whole. Because if you want, if you won't do so, that stone will fall upon you and grind you to powder. So the invitation here to him that is thirsty is come. Come to him. Fall upon him now. So that you too can desire his coming. Or else he's going to come and fall upon you. Who is addressed? Well, he that is thirsty. Jesus said in the Beatitude, Blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. The righteousness someone who is thirsty, thirst after, can only be found in Christ, his righteousness. And he's available. Let him that is a thirst come. That invitation was there. When Jesus said, come unto, you, come unto me all you who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. It's there when the book, this book was completed around 100 AD and that invitation is still here today. Let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. So this, these last two phrases go together. So you have the spirit and the bride saying come, inviting Jesus to come back. You have he that hears inviting Jesus to come back. And then the construction in the grammar changes. And now you have he that is thirsty being invited to come to Jesus. And you have he, that whoever wills. Not just he that is thirsty, but whosoever will, let him come and take of this water of life freely. Who is invited to come to Christ? The Spirit and the Bride. Those that hear and believe this book invite Christ to come. But who is invited to come to Christ? Whosoever will. Those words are a mouthful. Those words ought to straighten out a lot of man-made theology. Whosoever will. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The water of life is free and it's available to whosoever will. But it's not automatic. 
It was available. It's been available for a long time. It's available right now in 2023, but it's not automatic. Whosoever will. Now that word will here in Revelation 22.17 is the exact same word that appears in Philippians 2.13. What does Philippians 2.13 say? For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So that will that's in 2217 Revelation is right here. So whosoever will, and it is God that works in us to will. Well, what does that tell us? Well, it tells us the same thing that Jonah discovered down in the belly of that well, covered in reeds, thought he was down in the heart of the earth, thought he was dead, he may have been dead, but down in the belly of that well with all that stomach acid and bile eating his skin, Jonah described what this means. Five simple words. Salvation is of the Lord. If you want to sum up what salvation is, just go to Jonah 2 verse 9. Salvation is of the Lord. It's a work of God from beginning to end. It's a work of God working within our own will. Therefore, whosoever will, let him come. And when whosoever comes, he comes because God has worked in him. Salvation is of the Lord. People like to talk about free will. Man's got a will given to him by God. And man is responsible before God for the choices that he makes. And we can't blame God. For anything. We blame God for everything because our first father blamed God in the garden for giving him the woman when she sinned. That's why we blame God for everything. We inherit that attitude and that murmuring. But we can't blame God. Who is the pot to say to the potter, why have you made me thus? Who are we to even say that? We can't blame God because God has given us a will. God gives us a choice. God gives us an opportunity to come. And if we refuse, there's consequence. But our will, I don't like that word free will. I don't like it. I'm not going to get into that today. But there's nothing in this life that is free except the grace of God. There's nothing in this life that's free except the grace of God. Nothing. Nothing that your government promises you. Nothing that a bunch of stupid Republicans promise you. Nothing that conservatives promise you. Nothing that a constitution promises you. There's nothing free except the grace of God and the water of life. Your will isn't even free. You can will all you want to go out in front of this house and in your bare feet jump to the roof of this house and it'll never happen. It'll never happen. You can will all you want for a Kleenex in your hand to disappear. And it won't happen. You don't have the free will to make those things happen. You are governed by your finiteness. So I'm not, you know, nothing's free, not even our will. And yet, whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. And yet, it is God that works in us to will. And yet, salvation is of the Lord. Praise God. Praise God. There's nothing that's free in this life. 
all that stuff that people celebrate and get into, all that stuff the devil promises, all that freedom that these homos and sodomites and trannies think they're going to get, it's not free. It comes with a price. I'm reminded of an old song written by that old heavy metal hard rocker devil guy, Alice Cooper. School's out. That was before my time. I know my mom and dad had a vinyl record. Oh, Alice Cooper, school's out. Now, they say, oh, Alice got saved. Now, I don't know about all that stuff. I don't know why some of that old music is still out there. Sometimes artists have no control over whether or not their old music stays out there because they don't own it. Record companies do. I don't know all that. But I know that guy wrote a song back in the 90s called Nothing's Free. And it was written from the perspective of people thinking all this stuff promised to them by the devil was free. And that at the end, the devil laughs. Ain't nothing free. You've been deceived. And it's true. There's nothing free. Nothing the devil promises is free. Nothing these politicians promise is free either. None of these bills. None of it's free. It comes with a cost. But the grace of God is free. Our will isn't free, but the grace of God is free. Whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. There it is. That's the last invitation. That's the last time it's said in the Holy Scriptures. Will we take it seriously? Not for just ourselves. Maybe we've drunk of that water freely. But will we take it seriously enough that we'll go out in this coming year and we will push the envelope and bid others to come and take it freely? Isaiah 55 The New Testament, the Old Testament, it's one. There is no God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament. It's all one. And the same invitation is right there, smack dab in the middle of the Old Testament. Isaiah 55, 1. Ho! Everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he hath no, that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Free. Come and drink. The grace of God is free if you will receive it. If you will come to drink of it, you can have something that truly is free. This is the last invitation in the Bible, but it's been, it's been stated twice here at the end of the Bible. So it's pretty important. If you remember in chapter 21, verse 6, same thing. And he said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. So in chapter 21, verse 6, we have a declaration that is free. And then we get over here to 2217. Now, we're, now, now people are invited to come take what is free. So it's right there twice. Pretty important right here at the very end of the Bible. In 21.6, why is that stated there in 21.6? Well, I talked about that. The Lord is getting ready to talk about the new Jerusalem, the home of the bride, in great detail. And therefore, the invitation is there before he gets into that detail. Come and get it. This is for you. 
What I'm about to describe, this new Jerusalem, this city, this bride, the future home of the church, this is for you if you will come and receive it. That's why the invitation is there in chapter 21, verse 6. Why is it again here? Well, it's here because He is coming quickly. Come now before it's too late. Come now before it's too late. Remember back in verse 11 of the last exhortation of the Bible? He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. Remember that? There's coming a time when there's no more chances. No more opportunity. No more uh, invitation. You missed it. The doors are closed. The wedding feast is shut. Just like the ark in Noah's day, God shut that door. Why is the invitation here? Because it's here to say, come and get it now before it's too late. It's too late for America. It's too late for this country. As I said before, this country, as it is constructed now, is so far gone from what it was founded to be. The very moral construct and fabric of our nation is trampled in the ground. It can't be fixed. There's no hope for this country as it is currently structured. The only hope is that everything that is now will be burnt to the ground and righteousness will rise up on its ashes. So there is no hope for America in its present political situation. But there is yet hope for America there's hope for an American any American doesn't matter what your skin color is doesn't matter how much money you have doesn't matter what your old political party is whether it's Donald Trump or that old Joe Biden who can't put two senses together or whether it's a bunch of wicked cops in some rural county of Montana or whether it's some good cops in Hickory, North Carolina whether it's some moral people or some depraved, wicked, evil child predators there's hope for anyone in this country that's living and breathing because Jesus says here at the end of the Bible whosoever will let him take of the water of life freely we're looking at the last invitation in the Bible remember that law of the first mention It behooves us to best understand and appreciate this last invitation if we will look at the first invitation. That first invitation in the Bible can be found in what book do you think it is? In Genesis. Genesis chapter 2. And what's interesting here is that in Genesis chapter 2, the Bible's first invitation is a preface to the Bible's first warning. Genesis 2.16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Here Adam is invited to eat of every tree of the garden, including the tree of life. That's the invitation. The first invitation of the Bible. Come and eat freely of every tree in the garden I've given to you. Even a tree of life. Verse 17, that follows... The Bible's first invitation is the Bible's first warning. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. 
For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So the Bible's first invitation is followed by the Bible's first warning. The Bible's first invitation invites Adam to enjoy what is freely given to him. Now when we jump to Revelation, just like the Bible's first invitation, Genesis 2.16, is followed by the Bible's first warning, Genesis 2.17, so is the Bible's last invitation, Revelation 22.16 and 17, immediately followed by the Bible's last warning, Revelation 22.18 and 19. We're going to get into that in the coming Sundays. So it's funny how we see what the pattern in the beginning of the Bible is repeated in the end of the Bible. So you can remember this easy. The Bible's first invitation is followed by the Bible's first warning. And the Bible's last invitation is followed by the Bible's last warning. Isn't that amazing? Separated by all those thousands of years in terms of the putting together of scriptures. It fittingly closes the book. But... We see that the first invitation has something very important in common with the last invitation. It's that word freely. Isn't it interesting that in the Bible's last invitation, there's a unique word that also appeared in the Bible's first invitation. And we talked about this when that word appeared back in chapter 21, verse 6, the word freely. The word freely is the first word of God that was ever revised or omitted by man. It was the first word of God that man questioned and revised. In this case, it was the mother of us all who revised it and questioned it. Mother Eve. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 2, Satan comes tempting. Yeah, God said, you shall not eat of every other tree. Yea, hath God said. And the founding of the yea, hath God said society, those who question God's word and feign themselves religious. It goes back to the Garden of Eden. We see it fully manifest and blossom in the life of Cain. But Eve said, and the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. She leaves out what God said. God said you could freely eat. She left out an important word. She revised God's words. The very first sin in the Bible really wasn't eating that fruit. It was changing what God said. And changing what God said and doubting what God said guaranteed that you would disobey what God said. So 3 verse 2 guarantees what would follow. But that's the first word that was ever revised or messed with by man. It's the great stumbling block. Why was it messed with, that word free or freely? Because it's the great stumbling block for men in their pride and in their sin. And in their tainted nature, passed down from their first father and mother. The great stumbling block. It's a great stumbling block. The notion that God would offer us His grace freely is a dart in the heart of man's pride. And it's a great stumbling block. It's a stumbling block to the Jew. Romans 10. Romans 10 verse 3. 
a great stumbling block. Freely. Whosoever will take of the water of life freely is a stumbling block to the Jew. <coughs> Romans 10 verse 3 says, For they, talking about the Jews, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves into the righteousness of God. God's righteousness for free. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else, so that a man may say, my righteousness is in the Lord. Right there in Isaiah, it's a stumbling block. They, wanted to, they thought they had to establish their own righteousness instead of receiving the righteousness of God, which was free through the Messiah. A stumbling block. It's a stumbling block for the Gentile as well. We better be careful about being too hard on the Jew for rejecting his Messiah. We look in the mirror as a culture here in America. Jews are starting to wake up while Americans are going to sleep. There was 12 believers in Jesus Christ the Messiah in Israel when it became a nation, a modern state in 1948. There's over 30,000 today. Jewish believers, the Israel of God, who believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and are looking for Him to return. Jewish folks are waking up just like the Bible said they would in the last days. We're going to sleep. So be careful about being too hard on a Jew. Look in the mirror first. But it's a stumbling block for the Gentile as well. Romans 2, 14 and 15. For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. So God has written His law in our hearts. Our conscience reveals to us that we are guilty and helpless without a Savior, but only hopeless if there is no Savior. That law written on our conscience is a tutor that points us to Christ. And yet, though our conscience bears witness, and yet our thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. Excusing. Our conscience accuses us and points us to a Messiah, but we excuse us. We excuse our conscience. It's a stumbling block for us Gentiles as well. But Romans 5, 15-18, I won't read those verses, tell us three times that the salvation of God is a free gift for both Jew and Gentile. Freely, the first word ever revised of God revised by man in His own righteousness, a stumbling block to the Jew, a stumbling block to the Gentile, is yet and remains a free gift to both Jew and Gentile. Right there in Romans 5, in those three verses, three times we're told it's a free gift. Freely. Freely. That's the stumbling block. When you look at the spirit of Antichrist, you can read, you can write these verses down. 1 John 2, 22. 1 John 4, 3. 2 John 1, verse 7. The spirit of Antichrist is very clearly defined. It's, we, we can know the spirit of Antichrist. We ought to know many aspects of his spirit. Because he's the second most talked about person 
individual in the Bible. And we're not looking for him to come. We're looking for Christ to come. But it behooves us to know him as he is revealed so that we can recognize the subtleties of his spirit. But what's very clear about the spirit of Antichrist is that he denies Christ's nature. He denies Christ's sufficiency. The spirit of Antichrist denies that the Messiah, whom the Old Testament declares to be God, has actually come in the flesh. And that what he did in the flesh is sufficient to cleanse and to save. That's the spirit of Antichrist. You can recognize it when the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ is denied or watered down. You can recognize it in these false sects and cults when the all-sufficiency of Christ in his sacrifice to save is watered down or paired with something else. That is the spirit of Antichrist. The spirit of Antichrist denies Christ's nature, denies his sufficiency and his ability to offer salvation freely because what he has done. And therefore, the spirit of Antichrist de- denies or revises exactly what Eve revised and denied in the Garden of Eden. And because she revised it and denied it, and didn't have her quote-unquote Bible straight, she set herself up to be deceived. And therefore, the tree of life is no longer free. The tree of life used to be free. It's not free anymore. Chapter 22, 14 here in Revelation says, Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they might have access to the tree of life. It ain't free like it was to Adam and Eve. Christ's commandments are repent and believe the gospel. And if you won't obey those commandments, you ain't getting at that tree of life. It's no longer free, but the water of life remains free. The water of life is Christ Himself, a well springing up in us unto life everlasting. The water of life, the water of the Word is free. Let Him... Whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Isaiah 55, 1. Ho, that is thirsty, come and drink. You don't need money. Come and drink without price. Drink before it's too late. What does this last invitation of the Bible emphasize? I think it emphasizes three things that are very important for us as we move forward into a new year. And as I have exhorted you, we push the envelope in the new year. Number one, God is not a beggar. He's a gracious judge. He's a governor of the nations. He's a mighty king that invites whosoever will to come and drink of the water of life freely. But as we see in the next two verses, he is not a beggar. He's not a beggar. He means business. And there are consequences for rejecting his invitation. We also see here that the water of life is free. It's free. But it is, and it remains free in 2023. But it is and it never was cheap. It's free, but it was never cheap. And it isn't cheap this coming year. It cost the Son of God His life and His blood. It cost God. God purchased the church 
Paul said, with his own blood. It cost the Son of God his life. He was humiliated. He was falsely accused. He was tortured. He suffered. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was smacked in the face and spit upon. And that's all before they nailed him to that tree. When the Bible said, Cursed is he that hangeth upon a tree. Nailed him to that tree and hung him up there, exposed for all to see. Walking by, wagging the head, shaking the fist, laughing. Not knowing that what was transpiring was for their salvation. It's free, but it is not and never was cheap. And then lastly, it's available in 2023. That water of life is free and it's available, but it is and never was automatic. There's a false spirit of Antichrist in American churchianity that thinks because Jesus died for our sins that everybody is automatically forgiven and everybody can just do whatever they want because Jesus died for my sins. I've had people on the streets mock and, 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 and express joy and gladness over fornicating, over homosex, over pornography, over slaughtering their babies because Jesus died for my sins. It doesn't matter. God forgave my sin. It's not automatic. If you want that water of life, you've got to come and drink it got to come and drink it. It's available, but it's not automatic. And when you crucify fresh the Son of God and put Him to an open shame like that, there ain't no forgiveness for you. There ain't no forgiveness. But today is a day of salvation. day of great judgment is coming to this country. You know, we may not even have to worry about some little old stupid circus saga out there in Montana in the courtroom. We may not have to worry about it Because there's probably as great a chance that some horrible disaster is going to rock this nation to the core before this thing even sees the light of a courtroom. Because this nation has crucified afresh the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. And judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. And what ought to be our response to that? Fear? No. No, no fear. Our response need to be, needs to be pushing the envelope. Christ, come. Whosoever is thirsty and whosoever will, come. Come before it's too late. Just like old Noah, that preacher of righteousness, preached 120 years, come on, get in the ark before it's too late. Nobody listened. And when he got in the ark with his family, God said, before it's too late. They were banging on that door when the waters rose. It's too late. There's coming a day when it's too late. So come and drink of the water of life freely. Some of you young folks in here, maybe you're worried because you just, uh, you're too embarrassed to make a public confession of Christ. Or you just don't know what to say. You need to come drink of the water of life freely while it's available. And remember this, Jesus said, if you won't confess me before men, I won't confess you before my Father. Guys, I used to be scared to death to stand up and talk in front of people. Look at me today. I don't even think about that. I'm telling you, those fears aren't any more real than the fears we used to be told by Whitey Missionary in Nepal. You can't go out here and preach on the street. You're going to get kicked out of the country. There's no reality to it. So come and drink of that water before it's too late. Come and drink. 
Come and drink so you can have all of these great promises. Promised to the churches here in this last book of the Bible. And come and drink before these things begin to come to pass. It's free. Last invitation of the Bible. Nothing free but the grace of God. And that grace is manifest in the water of life. The Lord Jesus Christ. His death, burial, His resurrection. His ascension and His soon return. Lord Jesus, let the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, Maranatha. Amen. Next week we're going to look at the uh, last warning. I, I may not be next week. I don't know. I need to talk to elders. But we're going to look at the last warning of the Bible. Verse 18, it's a twofold warning. So we've got to take verse 18 on its own. And then verse 19 on its own. Beware. Better not add to God's Word. And beware, you better not take away from it. And there's been a lot of that done, not only throughout history, but in churches today. A lot of it. Last invitation followed by last warning, just like the first invitation followed by first warning. I, I marvel at how it all comes together. One book, the written word, the visual, the written manifestation of the living word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you're not a beggar, that you're a gentleman. And Lord, that you offer us salvation from this present evil world and from our sins freely. And that even in our whosoever will, you are at work. You work in our will. And when you do so, we can come to you and find grace and mercy. We can find salvation. We can say like old Jonah, salvation is of the Lord and is free. Free but not cheap, available but not automatic. Help us to remember that today. Help us to desire, Lord Jesus, that you would come. And help us to desire that he who is thirsty and whosoever will would continue to come before it's too late. Lord, in this coming year, I ask that you would help us to be bold, to be courageous, Lord. There's no such thing as meekness in the Bible that isn't paired with courage. That, that all that simpy false meekness that the world talks about, that's antichrist. Because you never see meekness in the Bible that's not paired with courage. Give us meekness and courage, Lord, to push the envelope, not to fear men, and to do what's right because you say it's right. Not because a nation or governing authorities in a nation that has turned its back upon God says one way or another. Bless the food we're about to eat. And uh, Lord, we just rejoice knowing that we are one step closer to your coming for your church. Lord, help us to look for that, to look for you, to look for that blessed hope. And in so doing, to occupy faithfully until you come. Pushing that old envelope, Lord. I thank you for all those scripture portions that went out years ago there in Nepal. How you honored that. And how you're still using it and you're still using Brother Bishnu, Lord. Lord, what just, I just marvel at your divine hand of providence. And Lord, I look forward to what that hand is going to do in this coming year. Lord, we can again take another step on that long walk across America. When the brethren here can again come alongside us and pray for us. And when we can go out and share the gospel on the streets here and in our everyday activities. And maybe in some foreign nation, maybe we can all go see Brother Bishnu and labor with him or or uh, uh, um, 
go back to Peru or, or, or go help old brother Gulzar, Lord. We just look forward. Because when we trust in you, we can be sober and yet excited about the future because we know the end of all things. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Again, Lord, we ask that you bless this meal and our fellowship together be with those who aren't amongst us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen.